G'day guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Chewing the Fat. Today, myself and JY chewed the fat with Rachel Barson. Rach is both a personal trainer and a dietitian, and we absolutely loved having her on the show. We discovered what the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist was. We asked Rachel about her opinion on PTs giving out diet advice and uh, helping with eating disorders, and we found out what the most important diet strategies were for recovery and just for the general population. You can find Rachel at rb.dietitian on Instagram and also at the strength and rehab HQ on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram at chilling the fat underscore podcast as well as at CB Physiotherapy and Equinox PS. Please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you haven't already. And if you do prefer to watch these episodes rather than listen to them, please jump on our YouTube channel and you can check us out there. Hope you enjoy. of Chewing the Fats. I am CB. And I am JY. And today we are Chewing the Fat with our good friend Rachel Barsom. Rachel, how are you going today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. We are thrilled to have you on the show. Now, a bit of background on Rach. Rach is both a personal trainer as well as a dietitian, which is super cool. Um, she's yeah, absolutely head and shoulders in the industry that we love and that we're a part of and that we talk about all the time on this podcast. Um, can you please start off by telling us a bit about yourself, Rach, and a bit about your career? Okay, sure. Well, firstly, thanks for having me. Um, I guess... Growing up, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. It was very different to what I, where I thought I would end up. So I just always had a, an interest in nutrition and health. So I guess when, I, when the time came and I didn't really know what I was doing, dietetics really stood out to me. Um, so after school, I started a Bachelor of Human Nutrition at La Trobe University. And then I went on to do the... Um, a Bachelor of Human Nutrition with honours after that. And then I completed a, the Master of Dietetic Practice. So I was at uni for a while. And during that time, I did my Cert 3 and 4 in personal training. Um, so I started being a personal trainer before I was a dietitian. And um, I think being a personal trainer beforehand really helped prepare me for my placements and going out to see clients. And I, I think that it was really beneficial for me to have that one-on-one -on -one contact beforehand because I didn't really know what I was getting into when I started the masters. Um, you kind of go through the pathway and you're like, Oh yeah, this sounds good. And then, and then you start and you're like, I didn't expect this. Uh, so all of that counseling and client interaction was something that translated for me from PT to dietetics. Um, after I finished uni, in, in terms of my career, I'm still fairly new because I finished in 2019. Um, I think everybody's journey is very different. Um, so for me, when I finished, shortly after COVID happened and we went into lockdown, so trying to go out into the workforce and have a job was getting very tricky and living with my grandparents, I didn't feel comfortable going out and working in a hospital. So I decided to start my own Instagram as a dietitian. And from there, things just started happening for me. And I, so many random things popped up that helped me, um, I guess, learn more about social media and learn better ways to articulate and portray nutrition information. And um, since then I've now, got a job as a dietitian at the Strength and Rehab HQ in Epping. Uh, so I'm really liking it there. And my caseload is very, very varied. Um, it, it's really not what you expect. I went in expecting a lot of sports nutrition and I've ended up with a lot of different things. So I'm, I'm really liking it so far. Very, very cool, Rach. Um, Did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, there's obviously a massive, a massive link between personal training and, and dietetics. Yeah. So um, I suppose, yeah, to have that sort of head start, I, I'm, yeah, as you said, I'm sure it's been a massive, massive help in your career, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Um, 
Um, your Instagram is absolutely killing it. We'll uh, put a link up in the show notes. Is it RB Dietitian, I believe, on Instagram? I think it's RB Dietitian. RB Dietitian. We'll put a link in I the think. show notes. We'll pump you up because some of your content oh, yeah. has been, uh, been fantastic, which is obviously why we're so keen to have you absolutely. on the show. Um, I just want to quickly touch on as well, Rach, what you said before about actually getting amongst um, the grass and doing a, uh, a PT course and getting into PT to then obviously translate mm. university work. I think it's fantastic. Do you, um, do you see a lot of people sort of in the same field, sort of just getting amongst the university courses and struggling after that to actually be able to, you know, portray their work? Or I think some people might have. I felt very prepared for it. You, you can only be so prepared going into a hospital for placement. Um, it's a very different environment to being in the gym. Um, but especially when it comes to things like weight management um, and discussing that, I thought I was a bit more prepared than some other people might have been. And I did notice um, some other students often having a bit of trouble with how they could approach um, patients and I think the main reason why people don't uh, pass their, some of their placements is because of that interaction between them and the patient and their ability to speak to them because that's not something you can always teach like it, ta it takes a lot of time you can learn the knowledge but the ability to speak to someone and connect with them and build rapport so that they trust you and do what you're telling them that that's a that's a skill that you know it's it's very hard to teach comes from being out there in the trenches. Yeah. Um, what I want to know, Rach, you hear of dietitians and you hear of nutritionists. Now, what's the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist and, and who actually needs to see these two different yeah. professionals? Yeah. So anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. Um, it's not a very highly regulated title. So a nutritionist can be someone that's got a tertiary degree, like a bachelor of human nutrition and a nutritionist can be someone who's done a six week course. Whereas a dietitian is by default a nutritionist. And the main difference is that dietitians have additional qualifications where they can counsel or work with individuals that have chronic diseases or other health conditions. So for example, a dietitian can work with someone with diabetes, whereas a nutritionist, they, they really shouldn't. Um, and they can advise, a dietitian can advise someone with that chronic disease on how to manage it through their diet. And dietitians also have really strict criteria that they have to meet every year to stay accredited, which I assume is the same for being a physiotherapist. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you, you kind of have to keep up to date with all of that. But to put it simply, a dietitian can help people who have health concerns and chronic disease, whereas a nutritionist is someone that can mainly promote nutrition to just a general healthy population. So someone that doesn't have any adverse health issues. And is it more in an advisory role rather than a prescription role? So then yes. you're not actually so, allowed to prescribe. It has to be sort of like of a general nature. Yeah. So some nutritionists can have additional qualifications where they can prescribe, but they also have to have insurance. Well, they should have additional insurance for that. I know a lot of personal trainers go on to do the sports nutrition Australia um, additional work and or like Mac nutrition. They, they can actually prescribe. Yeah. So it's just additional, but I do think a lot of people potentially practice out of their scope. It's a very blurry line. Sounds like the industry in general sometimes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I like it. Um, I suppose a big part of a personal trainer's role obviously is to give out nutrition advice and, um, I mean, mm. personal trainers are often not even nutritionists, let alone dietitians. Um, so I suppose I, I think that would obviously give you a massive advantage in that part of your professional life as you're still working mm. as a personal trainer uh, at Fernwood. Mm -hmm. What do you think in general about personal trainers who obviously don't have your qualifications giving out diet advice, diet advice to, to their clients? <laughs> yeah, um, I think it, uh, similar to nutritionists, personal trainers, I think the, the spectrum is so varied. Um, and I think it depends on the personal trainer. Some, some are really, really good and they might know more about body composition and that nutrition than I do. And they definitely know more about, you know, bodybuilding than a lot of my cohort would. So, you know, I think it just depends on the, the personal trainer. And like I said, some of them might have additional qualifications so they can give out diet advice, which I don't have an issue with. I, I feel like they're, there really isn't any harm in a personal trainer giving out basic 
diet advice according to the um, Australian Dietary Guidelines because that's a free public health document or like free knowledge anyway. So if they're showing someone who knows nothing about nutrition, the Australian Dietary Guidelines, I don't see any harm. Sure. Um, I, I think that my main concern is sometimes when PTs may potentially delve into cl very clinical areas and things that are out of their scope, like for example, um, doing a gut, like a gut protocol and, and prescribing supplements so that someone can fix their gut health or manage their endometriosis with supplements or something when it's, it's not really in their area. So in terms of general healthy eating, it's, it's fine. But Do you see a bit of that in the PT world? Like there are trainers that are, that are doing that just that, like operating out of their scope. Yes, I, I, I yeah. do see that. I, I see James smiling. I think you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we, like it's the same. So as you were talking there, all I could think of is um, yeah. like sort of those PTs that after they've finished their Cert 3 and Cert 4, they think that they're a rehab specialist. Um, yeah. And they, you know, numerous times I've had, you know, new clients come to me and they've said, well, I used to have a PT and he was helping me with my, you know, whatever it might be and yeah just think like scope of practice you it, it should be a lot less broad than we sort of have made it in an industry where we kind of just you know say we can fix anything with our you know yeah course. it's a very blurry line um yeah. yeah but i've also had doctors um refer clients to like to me at firmwood or refer a client to the, the gym and say that your pt can give you exercises for your neck to fix your headaches yeah, right. Don't start so, and i'm just like <laughs> <laughs> so i'm like go see this guy in airport west <laughs> so you know <laughs> and port melbourne and port melbourne yeah oh yeah true oh well the the firm that i work at is like 10 minutes from airport west i think i was talking about that so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, just before we get into a bit more of the nitty-gritty about, yeah, I suppose, the, the more sciencey stuff and the practical applications of what you do, Rach. So, obviously, yeah. politicians, like you've said, that you work with such a wide scope of people from your general population to, you know, chronic disease management and people with diabetes and all sorts of things. What, mm. What's your typical caseload or your typical client, if there is any? Like, who do you work with the most? And I suppose, what, what do you enjoy the most apart your, your, about your role and who do you enjoy working with the most? So I guess I briefly touched on it earlier. I, uh, with, with my current job as a dietitian at the Strength and Rehab HQ, I am, um, the people that I see, like the demographic is actually quite varied. Yeah. And I think that I'm still quite new in the role that I haven't found my niche yet, but I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And a lot of it is working with uh, clients to help with their body composition and weight management. Um, I also think that's probably an area that I'm most familiar with. So it, I enjoy doing that a bit more because I'm familiar with it. Another area that I'm getting more interested in that I never expected was more with children and chi uh, child adolescent nutrition. It's something very new to me and it's not something that we, we did some work with uh, pediatric nutrition at uni, but that was more, with infants and toddlers. Whereas I feel like that age from like six to 13, it's not something that I know a lot about. Like it's, it could seem pretty straightforward, but it can get quite complicated. Uh, so that's an area that I'm also learning a lot more about. And I've found it quite interesting, but I do like having quite a general caseload and working with a few different things so that I have exposure to more areas. And I, I think that makes you a good practitioner as well having that ability to problem solve if someone comes to you with a concern that's not necessarily where you specialize but you can still help them to an extent obviously you probably need to refer to someone who is a specialist in that area but i, I do think it's useful to have like a good base knowledge of a lot of areas what do you what do you find the biggest differences between adolescent nutrition and like sort of general adult population nutrition is just to, um, yeah. something that I've had a lot of people ask me about and I've actually, it's saying I don't feel comfortable about advising. So, yeah, I think it's quite a, um, from my understanding, it can be quite a murky area because you, you may think, oh, like the nutrition's basically the same. I think especially after 16, 17 years old, you would treat that like an adult with in terms of nutrition. But I think the main big difference is 
potentially when it comes to weight concerns. And I've, I've had some situations where parents are worried about their asking me about their child who they think may need to lose a bit of body fat because they're concerned their child's going to be overweight as an adult and they don't want them to go through some of the, the negative stigma that's sometimes associated with that hmm. because the parents themselves experienced that growing up and through their adulthood. Um, so the main thing I think is how to tackle potential weight concerns. And from my understanding, it's not recommended that you diet as a teenager because, well, firstly, it can impact growth to an extent, especially if that uh, adolescent is playing sport. You don't want to be cutting their energy intake and, and so on so that they can lose weight when it's impacting their sport as well. Um, and the other thing is the more psychological component. Like imagine growing up and being told by your parent or you're being told by your parents that you need to lose weight. Like, I don't think that necessarily sets you up to feel great about yourself as you grow up. So I think it's, it's more of that side, which I, I, I guess the psychologist does come into play there too. But it's been a, a tricky, like ethical line for me where I've had clients potentially ask me to help their child lose weight and I don't feel comfortable doing that. And from what I can see, it's not recommended that you have your child lose 10 kilos when they're 15 years old. Yeah. So the main thing is to maintain their weight in that case and not gain large amounts really quickly. But that being said, it depends on the, on the child because they're still growing and they grow at different rates. What about um, in regards to sort of like, let's say body composition specifically, because you see a lot yeah. of young guys, girls get to the gym and they want to obviously maximize the aesthetic uh, value they get yeah. from it. It's a tough one because often, I guess it all does come down to, you know, their basic nutritional um, sort of structure. I always feel uncomfortable sort of getting kids to use, well, not kids, but like, you know, young adults to, you know, use words like, you know, gaining, cutting, maintenance, whatever yeah. the nargin might be, because of it, I just feel like if you're, you know, telling it, like, let's say a 17 year old guy that I, if he cuts a bit of body fat, he'd look better. We then sort of get to 19, 20 and we start to, you know, you know, encourage that in some certain you know, mm. specific cases. Do you think that there is yeah. an ethical thing like for someone say under 18 to be, you know, trying to minimize body fat or do you think it's kind of like, yeah, that's my case. It's, 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 it just feels like a real gray area. I, I agree. I do think it is a gray area and um, yeah, because I, I understand that it's also like very, isn't the, the prime age to start resistance training, like, um, like 11 to something years old or something like yeah i was gonna i was literally gonna say that and it, we just shouldn't train in general like until we're <laughs> yeah so um i do think though it's useful to educate about that but i understand what you mean it's a gray area because you don't want to give give them that education around nutrition and how to manage their body composition through gaining cutting whatever mm -hmm but then they leave you and then they've got that information and you can't help them with that. Yeah. So, it's, 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 yeah. So like it feels you like you can encourage them to sort of look at the specifics of nutrition, obviously what makes yeah. good, you know, nutrition itself. Um, but it, it kind of just feels weird that it's like, oh, you're 16. So sorry, we can't cut body fat, even though that's, you know, what you want. I'm not saying like, you know, yeah, yeah. Sense, but then they turn 18 and then you can sort of say okay cool now you can it's just it's not like driving yeah. a car it's yeah and i i don't now like now thinking about it i don't know if the exact especially when it comes to that i don't know if the exact a like if they're 17 or 18 it doesn't necessarily matter i think it's more what their body is like like and what stage yeah. of their growth they're at yeah. so if they're like a really jacked 17 18 year old and they want to compete the following year while well, you like you got to do what you got to do <laughs> so um like yeah it's a it's a good question it's and i don't have a very straightforward answer for you <laughs> i think it's a straightforward answer yeah, yeah. Uh, you've done you've done a great job there that was good um what i want to know is you hear so often people you know going on a diet they're going off a diet they're breaking their diet they're eating the wrong thing they're you know bouncing around 
in my job, like I'm lucky that most of my clients listen to me for the vast majority, but those who don't and those who don't go away and do the things I advise or do their exercises, like that's super frustrating. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm imagining like non-compliance in the world of, you know, in your world, when you're prescribing people food and what to eat and, and when you're putting people on diets is massive. Like, so I suppose what I want to know is why do people struggle so much with dieting and, and how do you manage that non-compliance um, when you're dealing with your clients? It's funny. This is now makes my answer makes me think of I of your podcast about nutrition because I listened to it, yeah. um, and James constantly saying it depends. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you said you didn't like paddle pops, and I like paddle pops, so um, I guess you're going to delete this after I leave. So uh, I reckon. Okay, so thanks for joining us, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, it a number of factors can contribute to why someone isn't complying with um, their, you know, prescribed guidelines for their nutrition or their diet. Um, I think it's important here for me to like specify that this is specifically around dieting, not just general non-compliance. And it is, it's very context dependent, but a lot of the ones that I often see, uh, especially if someone's only just started working with me, their nutrition literacy and knowledge around nutrition. If they don't, if I say to them, you know, um, have a source of protein, source of carbs, source of fats and like veg around your, in your meals. And they're just nodding at me like, yeah, 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 yeah. And they don't even know what carbs are. Yeah. So, and I'll just like, so I think that's a big one. Just them having a base nutrition knowledge and me as a dietitian identifying where they sit on the spectrum of um, understanding nutrition. So the more you because if you why it is that you're doing what you're recommending, the more I can understand. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very easy when you know so much about a certain topic to just, you might educate someone about the basics and then just make throw away suggestions that they don't understand. Like, Oh, choose, choose the higher protein yogurt. Like they might be like, what, what do you mean? Does yeah. it say high protein on the package? And sometimes you have to pull yourself up and think, you know, I've got to make sure I specify what to look for to choose that or choosing like something lower carb or what doesn't matter. It's funny but, um, you say that because yeah. today I actually had someone who I'd been advising to eat Greek yogurt for a while. And I obviously mm. believe the primary aim with any new client is to educate them rather than prescribe. So it should be like mm. that word spectrum. Like you want them to find out where they are on the spectrum and sort of push them in towards the, you know, the end that they need yeah. to be. I was prescribing Greek yogurt to her because, you know, I think we all know why we eat Giovanni and these mm-hmm. things, but she, yeah. um, she was just kind of nodding her head for however long it had been. And then yesterday I asked me, she's like, so why do you always tell me to eat Greek yogurt? And I was kind of like, wow, yeah, all right. I never really explained to her um, the reasons, you know, being the high protein, the low fat. And she said, wow, I didn't know Greek yogurt had low fat. She goes, I didn't even know pro- yogurt had protein in it. So, yeah. you know, these are, I, I think, you know, we forget how little some of our clients know because we obviously know all these things or like to think we do. It's like when you get someone in the gym, that's a complete beginner, never been to a gym before. And um, you're just t- like using words that they've got no idea, like sets and reps. Yeah. And I, I've had people like, and I just realized mid mid explanation, I'm like, do you know what a set is? And they're like, no. And they're like, oh, wow. Like we have to like start from the very beginning, like just knowing what some words mean. And then I think like you would be so, these people would be so overwhelmed because it's like a bit of a different language. And I think it's like that in most professions. Like if I, you tried to talk to me about economics, I don't know anything. So it, that's a whole other language to me. That's me around tax time. I don't know. Yeah, they say the same words and I'm like, still don't remember this from last year. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, that's like, yeah. Sorry to butt in. Like we almost—it's okay. probably in like in our inner psyche bit that we almost like to show off our knowledge a little bit. You know, we're getting mm. paid to educate people, and we like to show that we actually know what we're talking about. Whereas sometimes, yeah, you want to give you know, them what they paid for. Like, exactly, yeah. we do really need to simplify it for the client and get on their terms and their level. Whereas, you know, often, yeah, like like you said, Jay, well, like we sort of forget how little they. We say, we also forget how little they care about knowledge sometimes. That's another element is you got to sometimes try to teach people things without. Just tell me what to do. That's what they want. They want just give me a plan. 
and one of my other questions I was going to ask you later, but I'll probably bring it up is meal plans yeah. and things like that. I have a lot of people come to me and they go, I don't, I don't care about protein and, you know, looking at the, the nutritional value of each food. I just want to know what to eat. So just give me a meal plan. Tell me what to eat. And yeah, it's a, it's a fine line because sometimes it's like, no, I want to teach you, but I also want you to get yeah. your health sorted. So yes. Well, the thing, the thing with meal plans is they, they can be useful especially if someone's got no idea how to do anything or how to structure anything. Um, But the other side of that is writing a meal plan for someone is actually really, really hard (laughs) because everyone eats differently. And often the people that ask for a meal plan are usually people that are making a huge like generalization here, but they're often people who will go out on the weekend and like eat with friends and, then they didn't follow it at all. And then they often get upset about it and all they get their meal plan. They're like, but I don't eat this and this and this and this. And, you know, I only, this is too much food. And like, whereas something I, I would, I'm more likely to give as a meal plan to a client is something where it's more of a guide. So it's like, you know, here's how to build your breakfast. Here's how to build your lunch. Here's how to build your dinner. Here are some snack ideas. This is, a rough guide of how to structure your meals, but you don't have to eat these exactly. And the other thing is like cooking preparation. Like some people cook with oil, some don't. And for me to get all of the information about how they prepare their food and how they eat, I have to ask a lot of questions. And sometimes people don't even know the answer because they just do things. They just prepare their food at home. They don't think about it. So um, it can be really, really difficult to do. Yeah, I think a lot of the time people get those like cookie cutter meal plans online and and so on. So they think, you know, that worked for me. I lost weight there. So I should use something like that again. Have you you seen the traffic light exercise for prescribing nutrition where we sort of, we kind of have like red, we have green light, yellow light and red light foods. And I use this a lot with my um, people, but you sort of have eat more green lights, eat some of this, Mm. the yellows and eat less of this, the reds. And you kind of get the the client to sort of look at what their eating habits are like and what foods that they generally gravitate towards and put them in one of the three categories. And then you Mm. obviously sitting down with them. And I find that it gets a huge, you know, huge amount of buying from the client to be able to say, well, these are the foods that I like and will eat rather than me being like, again, like Greek yogurt, just straight to the green. It's yeah. like, I like it. And they can choose which ones they enjoy and understand yeah. visually which level that sits on the spectrum again. Mm. Uh, and then it basically means like, yeah. yeah, that's a really good idea. Actually. Um, I, I've seen that used in like other areas, but um, I, that's actually something that is useful for me too, for my own practice. So thanks for the tip. Ooh, no, that's my pleasure. I can't, I can't take, can't take credit for it. It is a, uh, a precision nutrition sort of little, uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, I, yeah, I find it, it's probably one of the best things, um, for they, you, they did um, studies with that in the hospital and stuff as well, like at the Alfred with their canteen. Um, yeah. And in my honours project, we looked at um, nutrition interventions in community sporting clubs. And a component of that was evaluating the traffic light system that they use for canteens in like a basketball club or whatever. And it's the same concept, but they've just got foods labelled as um, green, like yellow and red. And like just the product placement and, you know, trying to get all the green foods at eye level and and so on. But that was their way of trying to help the athletes who are around there to choose the healthier options more often than not. Yeah. Perfect. So, I like, I like, yeah, it's I like. a good idea. Yeah. Um, for those that, that did listen to, to season one of chewing the fat, and if you haven't, we definitely encourage you to go back if um, from Mauritania. in, uh, in that nutrition episode, we spoke about a few myths in the industry, you know, intermittent fasting was one. The fact that that's not just a miraculous fat burner. We spoke about, you know, what these weight, what loss, weight loss shakes that don't magically, you know, make fat drip off us and, and all these sort of myths and, and, and misconceptions. You must be thinking of another podcast. Oh, yeah, must be. Be, yeah, um, these are real what I want to know from you, Rach is, is, you know, in your professional opinion, what are the biggest myths that are still out there that people believe all throughout society um, as far as diet, diet goes? Um, uh, there's so, so many. Um, maybe, I'm, maybe this is a bit of a cop-out answer, but I think <laughs> that for me, it's any myth or notion that one food in isolation makes you fat. Yeah. 
and it's just yeah and like we talked about before like sometimes it just baffles me how some so many people have don't have a basic understanding of nutrition and how energy balance works but they'll just blindly follow something that they saw on facebook um because it worked for someone else because it worked keto worked for my friend not not bashing keto like it has a place but you know it worked for my friend therefore this is the way that everyone must do it because it worked for them and it's magic um like you know if you want to build a house you call a builder so but for some reason people often think that if they need to lose weight, they can just construct a diet plan. On me, based off on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, like, like I said, with economics, I know nothing. So I won't pretend I know anything about it, but I think when, when it comes to nutrition, because people eat, you know, like sometimes you don't realize there are actually experts in nutrition that can help you with that. Um, so yeah, it's for me mainly any any myth out there where people just demonize a certain food or macronutrient. I often have people say to me like the the biggest one which has already been de- been debunked out there, but the biggest one that I get is oh I know it's the sugar. Like the sugar's what makes you fat. And I ask them why and they don't even have a good answer. They're like oh, oh it, 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 I don't know, that's what everyone says. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Rach? Because I was definitely one of those people. I went to the movies and watched that sugar film and was convinced that it's the worst thing in the whole world and it's responsible for all sorts of bad health issues. Was there was there a movie about that? Have you oh, not, really? That no, I haven't seen it. Oh, that was a cult. No. That was like five years ago now. I like went there and I absolutely loved it. I was like, this is the best movie ever and I learned, thought I learned so much, but it spoke about how sugar is literally like evil and it's the worst thing ever and it's yeah, literally the, the cause of every single health problem that we have in society. Um, Yeah, well, that's similar to like game changers where they cherry pick the info that they want to support what they're saying. And then you have people like Lane Norton just destroy destroy it. Like, here's all the research. I reckon Lane could like have done nothing else and just he'd be be the game changers dude. Like the guy who just attacked the game changers. Yeah, yeah. I think he does. I still think he's attacking. Yeah. Yeah, well... Essentially, no nutrient or food in isolation is going to cause that. It's more just, as you both know, consuming more energy than your body requires. And, you know, that, that's, that's just how it works for everything. And sometimes when I explain that to clients, they're like, oh, like I, I, I didn't realize that. Like that's so simple. And I was like, yes, something that all these diets have in common is that they put you in an energy deficit. That's it. James Smith style. Yeah. Nice <laughs> podcast. Um, no, and like yeah. a lot of people sort of, it, it's, it's also a catch 22 because as professionals, we don't want to encourage our clients to just sit there eating sugar and pizzas and, you know, all no. these other things. And I feel like, again, it comes down to that primary education. If you sort of encourage from the start, you know, the reasons why we don't encourage those foods, you know, the nutritional value of the foods, the fact that it is, you know, more calorie dense rather than it being yeah. in isolation. I think we find yeah. success. You can't, yeah, you don't want to like, be too dogmatic. Exactly. So I try and stay away from that. Like with my clients, I, like I often have them saying, you know, this is bad for me and that's bad for me. And I'm like, well, that one food isn't, gonna just be bad for you it's you know your whole diet overall just trying to have some more of the foods that have more nutrients in them than that are you know more more nourishing to you or whatever you whatever phrase you want to use um but yeah i think i think that's a it's a really important thing to do trying to just educate about what's more has a high nutritional value and when you choose those foods more often than not you'll you will likely be in a deficit anyway especially if it's someone that is wanting to lose body fat and they've never learned anything about nutrition before and all they've ever tried was keto so <laughs> i think um yeah a big part of obviously what we're speaking about and you know both of your roles is you know prescribing diets and giving nutrition advice for people to lose weight well on the opposite end of the spectrum we do see a lot of people with eating disorders, you know, and that's becoming sort of probably more and more prevalent in mainstream media, people suffering from anorexia and bulimia and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the role of dietitians in helping people with eating disorders and um, how important is the role of a dietitian for these type of people in comparison to the role of a psychologist, for example? 
Yeah. Um, when you were asking the question, I was thinking, you know, like it's very similar to the whole PT nutritionist question as well, where the line sometimes becomes blurry yep. um, in terms of scope, because we know that eating disorders are predominantly a very psychological area. Um, just be, like there's food involved, but it's stemming from something else. Um, so, but dietitian involvement can still be really important and it's more complementary to the whole treatment team or complementary to working with a psychologist. And I think the role is a little bit different depending on where you're working from. So the role of a dietitian in the hospital is a bit different to the role of a dietitian in the community, because in the hospital, that's where you have like emergency situations where someone has to go into the hospital and has to be put on potentially enteral feeds where they're um, getting fed through a nasogastric tube. And that's where a dietitian would prescribe what goes in the tube. So that's what dietitians do in hospitals as well. They, if you ever see anyone with a, a tube down their nose or something, the, the liquid that's going in there, the dietitians prescribe what's, right. what, what that is. Um, yeah. So that, that's, you know, liquid nutrition. Um, but in the community, dietitians will mainly be there to help debunk food myths and provide education and, and challenge food beliefs because it, like I said, it's that tricky blurry line between educating them about nutrition, but also psychology because the, the two things are so closely linked with someone who has an eating disorder. So unless a dietitian has some, has done some upskilling, which they can do, like some dietitians have upskilling in, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing and, and so on so that they can communicate more effectively and help with the psychological side a little bit better as well. But for most dietitians that don't have that extra, it's, yeah, it's more about helping someone with an eating disorder get over those very rigid nutrition beliefs. Like for example, no carbs after six, or I, I, I can only have meals that are really, really tiny and or having certain food rules. It's more about educating about the, those food rules and those beliefs. Yeah. But actually another one is both in the hospital and in, in the community assessing nutritional status. So uh, a dietitian can diagnose malnutrition. So trying to determine what, how the degree of undernourishment or the degree of malnutrition for that person is also something that would mostly be done by a dietitian. So they, they are important. Dietitians have a very important role, but it, it's also, it's always tied to a bigger team of health professionals. I like what you said about, yeah, one of the biggest roles or your biggest roles with these sort of mm. clients is, is education. And, you know, I think this is a bit of a theme that we've spoken about in, in previous episodes that, you know, people go to a PT, for example, to get a sweat on, but in fact, mm. the most important job is to educate your client. People come to me because, you know, they want some hands-on treatment or they want some exercises, but my role as an educator and actually explaining to them what's going on is more important than, you know, in all, yeah. in all you know, entire industry of healthcare and, you know, dietetics is no different. Your role as an educator mm. you know, seems to be the, the single most important thing. Um, yeah. You know, I think a lot of people miss, you know, people might go to a dietitian and be like, oh, I want a diet or I want a meal plan, like we sort of spoke about, but not actually give two hoots about why they're eating what they're eating or why those things are the case. But, yeah. you know, I think our interventions collectively as in this industry are always going to be more effective if we can provide that really effective and appropriate education. Yeah. I think it's very much, I think, isn't it like most, most humans, you automatically want to try and find the easy way out when you're driving somewhere, you want to take the fastest way to get there. Mm. So it, that kind of happens with your um, nutrition and with your training and with, with injuries. Like so many people I assume don't, don't want to do their rehab. And you, you said it earlier, um, you'll prescribe exercises and they just won't do it. So it's people just want the, the quick fix sometimes, but people, their education is the most important part. People yeah. also resist change. And that's the other side of it mm -hmm. is like generally you're going to find that from, you know, all our different areas we can prescribe and educate that until that person's ready to accept that this is a change that they need to make, um, whether that's to do the rehab, to stop doing a specific thing they're doing or to, you know, eat specific things. Well, until they're ready to do that, they're going to just get a buck. Yeah. So uh, do you see, do you see that a lot? Do you see sort of people when they first start with you, you find that maybe the compliance is lacking, but builds 
not just with their relationship, yeah. but just, you know, over time that you find that they're more ready and active. Yes. Um, this actually, I think I didn't finish answering Chris's question earlier about um, the other part of his question about non-compliance either. So this brings it back to that. I think um, that was my own. Some, yeah. So some people come to me and they'll do their first consult and they'll say they want all of this and they want this really rigid plan, even though I'm already in the back of my head thinking you potentially aren't going to do that and you're not ready for that based on their history of dieting. But, you know, I give them something along what they're after and then I look at their spreadsheet if I give them a spreadsheet and they haven't filled it out and then they don't come back and see me. And it's like sometimes, like at the start in the back of my head, I was like, oh, did I, like, did I write them a shit plan? Like, is that, is that why they didn't follow it? Um, but then I'm like, maybe they just went, then I realized I don't think that they were ready or they keep saying, I'll start next week. I'll start next week because they have this notion that they have to do things perfectly, but you don't, that's not how it works. That's not life. Um, but I have had some clients where they don't follow it at the start and, and then, yeah, a few weeks later, they'll come back to me and be like, look, I wasn't ready then, but I'm ready now. And then they, they are a bit more compliant, but it, it goes in waves and it just depends on the person. Yeah. Do you find like so, times yeah. simple tasks? Well, obviously simple tasks are better, but you know, rather than sort of prescribing an entire plan to someone that yes. know, may not be ready, even the most simplest things could, you know, could sort of set them on the way. Yeah. Yeah. So in that case, that's when, even though I, I may or may not know if they're ready or not based on what I've seen, but I'll give them some, I'll give them the plan and then they realize that they aren't ready for it. And then they'll come back to me and ask for something more simple. Yeah. And so you may think I wasted my time writing the plan, but it's something they'll come back to later anyway. So I think showing them that, yeah. You know that you now you now know obviously that that plan you know let's say they don't come back to it you now know okay well that's not something that we can focus on and it might get you closer to finding a winning formula. Yeah, definitely. It's all, it's all a learning process and it's it's often it's just trial and error because different people respond well to different things. Nice, very nice. Um, you mentioned in your role at the Strength and Rehab HQ, which we'll give a bit of a shout out to you guys. There'll be a link in the show notes if anyone wants to find where they can contact you. Yeah. Um, it's a fantastic clinic up in Epping. Um, good friend and, and former colleague of mine, John S. McGuire, is the director up there. He's also a fantastic physio. So g'day, John, if you're listening, which I know you will be. Um, He's Strength uh, and Rehab HQ, I know that you deal with, yeah, I know you deal with quite, <laughs> a, quite an active population. Um, we're yeah. closely with John as a physio and SNC coach up there. Um, and I suppose that sort of active, really motivated, fit athletic population is, I know it's a big part of it, our passions in, you know, what all of us do. What are the most important diet strategies for that active population um, when it comes to your athletes in general or people that are just really motivated and, and fit and healthy in their chosen sport or lifting weights or whatever it may be? Um, and also how do they go about recovering from their mm. training and from their athletic endeavours? Uh, so the first one isn't even diet related. So making sure that, that as an athlete or anyone that, that's into fitness or exercise, whatever, having adequate sleep and managing your stress is probably one of the biggest ones Love because that. you can tick all the nutritional boxes, but if your sleep is, is crap and you, you feel terrible, you're not going to be maximizing your recovery. So those two are probably, after you've ticked those boxes, firstly, just eating enough in general. I know, I think it's a, it's really a big one for females as well. They, who are just getting into fitness, they just don't eat enough. So, you know, maintenance is better than a deficit for recovery and muscle growth. And same for that, um, like it being in a surplus is going to be even better for recovery. So, you know, just eating enough in general and not having teeny tiny portions because you're getting into fitness and you want to look more toned but lose a bit of wet, like it's just, it's, anyway. Dieting, um, not so, yeah. like it's huh? the, dieting is not fitness. Like they're two no, no. exclusive elements. Yeah. So but, just eating yeah. enough in general for recovery is important. The second one is just having adequate protein. So, you know, the standard range of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilo, uh, especially if you're resistance training, maybe even higher if someone's in a deficit. Um, and then, 
thirdly, I would say just having adequate carbohydrates, especially for really active individuals and athletes, um, and that the amount of carbohydrates you'd need is scaled to your activity levels. Um, and the last one would be just staying hydrated. And I think it's an often neglected one uh, because being dehydrated can really negatively impact someone's performance and impact your coordination and whatever. So just making sure that you're hydrated, not only around training, but all the time is going to be really important because the, you, the last thing you want is to be dehydrated in the middle of like a, a, a game, if you're playing a sport or while you're training in the gym. It's interesting. So you I think say, those are my main ones. Really good points. It's interesting you say that, you know, your, your first thing as far as diet is just making sure you're eating enough to recover mm. uh, from the exercise that you're doing. And anecdotally, like I've seen that so much. Obviously, I'm not a dietitian or a nutrition expert by any stretch. This is why you're on the show with us, Rach. But yeah. I've, I've worked, you know, I work exclusively out of PT studios and I've worked with a lot of bodybuilders, for example, who are in calorie deficit. So they're eating less calories and they're, they're burning off. Um, for months mm. and months at a time. And I see the effects that that has on their physical health and their body. And they have way more aches and pains and they're far more likely to have flare-ups of previous injuries. And their training becomes harder and they're generally lethargic and they're just not well recovered. So I think yeah. it's, it's interesting that you say that. Because um, as I said, anecdotally, you know, without being an expert in the field, I've seen that all the time. The impact that being in a calorie deficit when you know the aim is to lose weight has on you, especially when you're doing it for the same periods of time, um, is massive. Obviously, there's a time and place for it, but, yeah, it does have a big impact on your physical health and your recovery. Um, you said being adequately hydrated as well is important. Now, that's something that's so simple that, you know, just drinking more water is something we can all do on a daily basis. Mm. Um, can you give us a few more specific guidelines about that? Like, how much water should we be drinking? How do we know if we are hydrated yeah. or dehydrated? Yeah. Uh, so, usually when you get to the point of being thirsty, you're already dehydrated. So the general rule of thumb is checking your urine. So if your urine is a light yellow straw color, that's normally a good indicator of uh, hydration status. And just the clearer it is, the more hydrated you are. Awesome. You know that yeah. we could have skipped all that because there's only one recovery tool we need. What's that, j Costs you about 160 bucks. Get yourself a Theragun. <laughs> and I don't know if you need any of those things, right? So thanks for um, yeah, thanks for giving us the long route there. But Chris, Strap your diet. Don't worry about sleep. Don't worry about hydration. Get a Theragun. Massage yourself. Every I actually got something like that for Christmas. It's like a, a thing that you wear around your neck and it massages your Oh, body. that's the next level. Yeah. They're evolving. My, I, I treat my auntie got it for me. <laughs> It feels good. <laughs> yeah, it's they're popular, mate. I'm telling you, it's the future. Uh, uh, Rach, you're spot on. No, you are spot on there. All jokes aside. Yeah. I really like it. Some excellent, easy, practical points um, for everyone. Now, lastly, I know the answer to nearly every question that we ask is going to be it depends, like we sort of joked about a little bit. But yeah. what do you think, in your opinion, are the three most important general diet tips just for the everyday person? So... Well, I often get this question asked by many, many people when they find out that I work in nutrition and they ask, what's the best diet for me? What's the, the best way for me to lose weight? And I'm, and like, I can see your faces, you're like, like, there's no, there's no best way to do it. It just depends on you. I can't tell you without a full assessment, then you'd have to come and see me for that. So, um, but just as a general rule of thumb, something that I often would just, if my PT clients at firm would ask me, because I don't, um, do the nutrition there. But if, if they ask me my general things that I would say is ensuring that you have a good source of protein at every meal. Another one is when you're trying to, you know, quote unquote, eat healthy or whatever, eat food that you enjoy. Like for example, if you don't like vegetables, find a way to prepare them that taste good to you and don't force yourself to eat the vegetables that you don't like. It's like, this common thing where people think they must eat broccoli, like, you know, I have to be healthy, so I've got to eat broccoli. It's like, well, if you really, if you're gagging on broccoli, don't, you don't have to eat it. Find something else green that tastes better or cook it in a different way. Um, the, the most sustainable diet is going to be a one that you enjoy for the most part, just for a general person. It's different if you're dieting for like a competition, but, yeah, like the one you enjoy is going to be the most successful for you. 
Um, and another one that sort of ties into this, I guess, is just vol- like the volume of meals. There's this really common misconception that when, when you're trying to manage your body composition and, and lose body fat, that you need to eat teeny tiny meals and you don't, you don't have to because then you get really hungry and then you accidentally eat something else and then feel guilty and just say, screw it. Now I'm just going to eat whatever I want. Try again tomorrow. So I think just having more volume in meals is, is going to be really effective. Like if you've got a, a huge salad rather than a, a really small salad, which is something I often see people having tiny salads, you know, like have a big salad as your main, if that's what you're doing and you're going to be really, really full. So I think those are the, the main ones that I would recommend besides, you know, the general stuff that you see. It's, it's obviously always context dependent and um, yeah, yeah. But obviously reach out to you and we'll, we'll put your contact details in the show notes if they do need any more specific Thanks. advice. But um, yeah. I do, I do really rate those little practical sort of takeaways oh, that we can sort of all apply. So um, that's brilliant, Rach. I have one last question for you, Rach. Okay. Tomato sauce in the fridge or in the pantry? <laughs> I don't, oh, I don't know if I want to answer this. This is uh, like a hot topic of debate. It is. <laughs> That's this, right. is a, this is the most important question you'll ever get asked. This right? decides whether you're ever welcome back on the pod. <laughs> okay, I feel like I'm going to, I probably won't be welcome back, but I, I grew up in a household where my mum put the sauce in the fridge. Yes! Oh, yes! Yeah! So yeah! I... So I put my tomato sauce in the fridge. What about soy sauce? Do you put that in the fridge? Fridge. fridge. I do too. Yeah. Sauces <laughs> go in the fridge. I don't understand who puts sauces in the cupboard. Madness. <laughs> Aaron puts, um, my partner puts um, soy sauce in the cupboard. So I'm the one who's always like putting it in the fridge. So <laughs> that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute pleasure having you on the show until the last one minute where you completely disappointed me. Nah, come back anytime, right? Tomato sauce definitely goes in the pantry. Um, but we really do appreciate <laughs> your advice, your takeaways, your expertise. Thanks so much for coming on and chewing the fat with us today. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Hey!